A really warm welcome to you, uh, particularly if you're new, maybe you're visiting us today, and also a real special welcome to you if you're watching online and you wish you could be here. I, I hope you've had a sense that God's with us and he's speaking to us, he's speaking to you as well. It's just great, isn't it? We need the people of God to encounter the presence of God together, to hear his voice together. I'm so grateful that we can gather in whatever forms we're able to gather and hear him speak to us and uh, to, to be at work in us. And I, th- I think that's what he's doing. And he's really got started on that already. And what we're doing this morning, we're, we're um, starting three messages that we're beginning this year with that we're calling God's Grace to You in 2022. Because it's a big year ahead, uh, we, and we wanted to kind of remind ourselves of great truths, really important things about God as we got started. As Dan said, we're going to be sharing vision in just a few weeks' time, and we thought, well, we need to get some real fundamentals in first. And that really fitted, particularly with the word that Sandy brought, about that sense of uh, it's a time, it's a new season, it's new life. God's doing something within us that will then start to sprout and bear uh, fruit and show that new life. So it's just exciting how that's all uh, come together. This morning. And what I want to share with you is perhaps the most basic thing of all of God's grace. Uh, Something that we're, if you're a Christian, you're here today, you are familiar with this, you know this. I'm not going to say something right now that you're like, whoa, that is brand new information. But sometimes we forget about it, and there is always more for us to discover and experience about it. And it is this that God loves you. He loved you. One of the things that got me thinking about this was a failed Advent resolution. Now, I know you're like, Advent resolution, why would anyone do that? And in retrospect, I don't know. But basically what happened was, I read something by a writer who I really admire, and she, she talked about how Advent is a time of darkness and waiting. And she says, we say it's the most wonderful time of the year, but really it's about darkness and waiting. And, and I thought there was something in that. That, that sense of experiencing something of the longing and, and, and the, the darkness before Jesus comes at Christmas. And, if, and, and therefore doing some things that would help me to feel that as I went through the month of December so that when Christmas Day came, I really did feel that sense of, whoa, he's here. Wow, light and life are now here. So I thought, well, I, I, maybe I'll try and avoid like chocolate and that kind of stuff uh, through December until the 25th. And also because actually you may experience it, if you ever do fast and then have a feast at the end of it, the quality of that feast is just increased exponentially. It's just something that happens when you do fast and then feast. It is extra amazing. And I still think that principle is worth exploring. But don't ever try and do that in December in the West. (laughs) Because we spend the whole month just saying to each other, isn't this great? Have some chocolate. Let's put lights up. Let's sing songs. Our carol service was on the 12th, for goodness sake. You can't say, I'm just, no, I'm just waiting, just waiting to the 25th. We celebrated on the 12th, and praise God we did, given how complicated the following Sunday was. I just felt like being a Scrooge. People were like, would you like some chocolate? And I was like, internally, it's like, do you want to say no to that? I mean, I'm good at keeping resolutions. If, I'd had any, if it was any other thing, I'd have been like, no, 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 thanks. But it just, felt, it just felt weird to do that at that time. And I was reflecting on this, and I, I really felt that it reminded me of how God's love is always being poured out on us. He is always lavishing his love. There is a time to restrict. There is a time to tone down. There is a time to do those kind of things. But that was not the moment. What God is saying says, I've just got an abundance of love. And that's what I want us to consider. 
today. I want you to be assured that God loves you, that he really does right now. He really does utterly. And so as we get started, I'm going to give you, I think, a lot of evidence from God's word for that in a moment. But God's spirit's here. So why don't we just ask him right now to make us really aware of this? Why don't It might help you to close your eyes, to focus, to, to reach out to him in, in a way. You might know him very well. You might be really familiar with his love. You might just have stumbled into church today or online today. And God is inviting you right now to say, Lord, help me to know your love. God, the Holy Spirit is sent to us that we might know the love of God. Let's invite him to do that. Let's ask him to do that. Holy Spirit, pour out the love of God into our hearts and minds. Fill us with a fresh awareness, with a new awareness, with a deeper awareness of the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. So if you are a Christian, you are used to this. You're used to hearing that God loves you. It is rightly the air that we breathe. But there there often remain some nagging doubts in us. Perhaps even as we become more familiar with this, as we hear this year after year, decade after decade, we think, well, I know he loves me, but he must have some reservations, mustn't he? Because he also knows me, like he knows everything about me. And that's what human loves are like, aren't they? Even the best of them, the people we love the most are the people we know the most. And if we know them well, that knowledge brings some reservations to our love, some qualifications, some complications. Maybe they have faults. They do things that annoy us. They do things that upset us, maybe, that trouble us, that hurt us. Moreover, we are all pretty self-centered, And actually, even the people we love the most, there are times when they're like, let's go and do this. And we're like, no thanks. Stop interrupting me. Leave me alone. Or why won't you do this with me? Why aren't we going? Come on, let's do it. Because there's something in us that is selfish in that way. And also, we experience sorrows. We experience losses. These things leave scars on our hearts. And that can fester into cynicism or bitterness. And and that can affect even our closest relationships. The ones that we, the people who are most dear to us, We can still not love as we would want to because there's stuff in our heart that that makes it a struggle somehow to do that. And without necessarily choosing to, we can start to think that God's love for us is like our love for other people. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a speech that God made to his people when they had been sinning grievously against him. And we're going to see how he responds to them. It's in the prophet Hosea chapter 11. And God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, those are false gods, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk 
It's just another name that God gives to Israel. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west, and they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is God's word. And in it, God uses as he often does in the Bible, one of the closest human relationships to describe his love for us. And the relationship he uses here is that of a parent. And as we look through it, I just want to encourage you to see if it reminds you of any other parent-child story in the Bible. So he starts by recounting his rescue of them from Egypt. When he says, Egypt's to the Israelites, he's saying, remember, I brought you out of there. And he calls them his son. And that's what he says to Pharaoh in the Exodus story. There's parallels with Exodus all the way through this. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. He goes on in Hosea 11 to talk about the yoke of slavery. That's like a bar that was put across animals. And that was this sense of they they were enslaved by Egypt. Israel had, Egypt had total power over them and they were in charge of their lives and they did terrible things to them and God set them free from all of that. He says that he taught them to walk and led them. And we know from the Exodus story that he did that through parting the Red Sea and then he led them by a pillar of flame and a pillar of cloud. He healed them, he tells them. And that's what he did. He healed all their diseases when they were following him. Exodus 15, 26, he says, I am the Lord, your healer. And he fed them miraculously with manna for 40 years. There is such tender care here. There is the generosity of doing for people what they couldn't do for themselves. There's no way Israel was ever getting out of Egypt until God came and set them free. There is the patience of a parent gently teaching their child to walk, letting them fall, but picking them up again and again and encouraging and encouraging. There is the condescension of him bending down from his position of great glory in the heavens to give them lunch. Why is he so good to them? 
Why is he like this? How have they managed to persuade him to be like this? Well, he tells them plainly in Deuteronomy 7 that they haven't done that. He says to them, it was not because you were more in number than any other people. It was not because you were impressive that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. That's why he was loving to them, because he loves. They weren't lovely, but he is loving. This is fundamental to who he is. In this whole Exodus story, this whole story of them being rescued and becoming God's people, the high point of God's revelation to them is when Moses gets a glimpse of who God is. And when he gets this glimpse, he hears proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And so Israel was to see their miraculous rescue from Egypt as a permanent evidence to them of God's love. Whatever else was happening, whatever was going on in their lives, they were to think to themselves, yes, but he did that. He loves us. And then from them, they were then to see any and all daily, day-to-day blessings they experienced in the land that he gave them as more evidence of his love. Rain and sun, life and harvest, community and kin, all the things that they enjoyed were all from this loving father. I have loved you, he told them, with an everlasting love. Did Israel respond in kind? No, they did not. They did not. And our reading listed some of the evidence uh, for this. For centuries, they failed to give God the credit for everything good that happened to them. They basically thought it was either them or even worse, it was the false gods of the nations around them. Those were the ones that they gave the praise to. Those were the ones that they made sacrifices to. Injustice flourished in the land as God's laws were ignored. All these terrible things happened, and so that brought terrible punishment upon them. Their cities were destroyed, and they were scattered to other nations. Would this be the end of them? Would they become just another footnote in history, a people you've never even heard of because they died out long ago? This is the knife edge of Hosea 11, 7, and 8. God says, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. This is it. This is the end. They are going to, it's done for them, yes? This is the moment. But what happens next? God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? He says, I'm not going to treat you like other peoples. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. When I look at you in all your sin, in all your rebellion, God says, my response is to not execute my burning anger, for I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. 
We're being taken here into the very heart of God's being. He is sharing with us his thoughts and his emotions. And and we find here two great surprises. The first is that Israel is not going to be punished as it deserves. And the second is the reason for this mercy. Because when we t- for us, when we tend to think of God not punishes for our sins, we're like, oh, well, although he's holy, he's also other things. And that's not what God says here. God says precisely because he is holy, precisely because he is not like anything else in, in everywhere, in anywhere, because he is the holy one, he says, I love you and I will not destroy you. God doesn't set aside or tone down his justice and his holiness. His divine nature doesn't work like that. Instead, with those things fully operational, as it were, he loves them and he restores them. And Hosea 11 ends with a promise that God's children will be brought home to the place where their loving father is. And that's the final link to another father and son story in the Bible. Maybe you worked it out. Think about what we've seen. A beloved and blessed son rebels against his father. He receives his father's riches, but he doesn't acknowledge their source. He finds himself in deep trouble in a foreign land. And the father's shocking and surprising reaction to this is not to punish him, but to have compassion on him, and he is restored to his place in the family home. It's the prodigal son. It's the prodigal son. It's the story Jesus told that we would know what God's love is like. This experience of compassionate welcome and love is available for anyone who turns to God. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done, if you turn to God, you experience his love, his welcome, his forgiveness. Anyone who puts their trust in Jesus can receive that. At the end of today, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. But for those of us who have done this, does this settle our doubts? Does this settle those fears that we still have about God's love for us? Because the story of the prodigal son ends with tension. The older brother says, but he's done this, and he's done this, and he's done this, and he's done this. And surely we think, yeah, he's right. He did do those things. Just like us, we've done so many wrong things, and we've failed so many times to do good things. The charge sheet against us is long, as it was for Israel in Hosea 11. Is God pretending otherwise? Or does he, does he still harbor a, a bit of a reservation, a little bit of a grudge? When you mess up this year, I say this year like it's going to take a year for it to happen. When you mess up today, is God going to say, I knew it. What a disappointment. In fact, I'm not disappointed. I'm not surprised. I'm just disappointed. Will his love for us be diminished? Or perhaps... Was it never quite as total as we might have dared to believe? Did he price this in and just kind of come to, okay, all right. Let's go back to Hosea 11 one more time. Because it's not just Israel 
there. It's not just us there. I don't know if that first line sounded vaguely familiar to you. Even if you're not maybe familiar with the Old Testament, maybe you've read the New Testament a few times, Matthew quotes it. Matthew 2.15, he says that line is also about Jesus. Let's think about this, son. Are there any reservations or qualifications or complications in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? Anything? No. Not a bit. Not even the tiniest shadow of doubt. For all eternity, they have known each other perfectly and they have loved each other perfectly and they have delighted in one another. During Jesus' time on earth, the Father says of him, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I have glorified his name and I will glorify it again. And Jesus says of the Father, I love the Father and do exactly as the Father commanded me. I honour my Father. Father, he says, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I and the Father are one. They're utterly united in perfect love. But this this tightness between them, this incomprehensibly perfect and passionate love is not a static, held-in thing. It overflows to envelop others. We're repeatedly told that God sent his son to save us because of his love for us. And we tend to think when we hear that rightly of being forgiven, of being cleansed from our sin, it absolutely is those things. But amazingly, it is much more than that. It is so much more than that. Because it isn't just that God's like, okay, you're a mess. I'm going to remove that mess. That would be incredible. But it's far more because this love of God embraces us into the love of the Father and the Son. So Jesus says in John 17, says, Father, you sent me, you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That's extraordinary, isn't it? We would have taken a kind of, you know, a condescending, forgiving love. That would have been way more than we deserved. But Jesus says that the Father is going to love us even as the Father loves the Son. God's love for us is not grudging. It is not changeable. It's not impersonal. It's not, I don't, it's, it's not compromised. It's not anything else that we might deserve or expect or fear. It is a sharing of the eternal love that he has for Jesus. He hasn't just acted in a loving way towards us. He is loving us like he loves Jesus. This is an adoption that makes us sons and daughters like the son. How is this possible? 
Sentiment will not achieve this. Being nice will not make this happen. Jesus has united himself with us. He has changed who we are. To switch metaphors, in a wedding ceremony, the bride and groom say to each other, all that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. And the two become one, and they're no longer who they were. And Jesus does this with us. He takes all of our sin and all of our shame, and he gives us all of his righteousness, all of his perfection, all of his goodness, all of his beautiful, eternally loving relationship with the Father. He gives that to you. We are in Christ, the Bible says. If you've believed in Jesus, you are in him now. And he is the focal point for all of the Father's eternally limitless love. God sees you as he sees his son. He loves you as he loves his son. Just ask the same question again. Are there any reservations or qualifications or complications in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? No, not a bit. For all eternity, they have known each other perfectly, loved each other perfectly, delighted in one another. This is how you are loved if you are in Christ. Now, there are from our side, experiential complications. There are things that we do that make us less aware of his love. There are just, we're just living in this life, and so we don't necessarily experience this to the fullness, but it is the reality. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians that we're seated in heavenly places. You're like, I am not, this is, you know, you're, this, I mean, it's great, but I wouldn't say any of you right now feel like you're seated in heavenly places, but you are in Christ who is in a heavenly place. In the same way, God says, you, uh, I love you as I love my son because you are in my son. Being loved by God in this way really isn't about what you've done. It really isn't about what you're like. We're under so much pressure, aren't we, to be successful, to discover and be our best selves, to present this brilliant image to other people and the love of God for you in Christ has nothing to do with that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul asks. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or anything else in 2022? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, again that includes this year, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we respond to this? What should we do? Well, everything. Yeah, we should love God, of course. We should love others, of course. There's so much that we want to do about this. But just today, 
I just want you to believe it and receive it. And there are many ways that can happen. I think today, God just, he just wants you to receive it. Israel had, as I said, the witness of the miraculous exodus, had the blessings of the life in the land to remind them again and again, if only they would look and see that God loved them. And so for us, we have this gospel, this good news with its eternal hope and any daily blessings that we experience now that God kindly gives to us. God does not ignore our many sins and failures. He is highly aware of them. He's more aware of them than we are. But far better than just pretending, he sent his son to die for us. The holiest moment in history as the anger of God, our sin, was poured out on his son and the moment of greatest love in all of history as the father and the son willingly do this for us. And so he's raised to new life that we might share God's life and God's love. I mean, we just need to tell ourselves this again and again and again. We need to delight in it. We need to read about it. We need to sing about it. We need to thank him for it. And then as we do that, all the other things, every other blessing serves then as a reminder and as a reiteration of his love for us. A beautiful view, an unexpected gift, a job, a friendship, a Christmas chocolate. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Even during hardships, the love of God is being poured out on us by the Holy Spirit. And those times do make us doubt. They do make us wonder, does he really love us? And the cross says, yes, he does. And our adoption says, yes, he does. And then we find that even in our doubt, even in our doubting, his response to that is not to be like, ugh, but to come closer and to embrace us again and to heal us and to assure us again of his love for us. Even in the worst moments of our sin, the worst thing you do this year, Isaiah 11 says he will still love you. Every day this year, it will be true because it has been true forever and will be true forever. He loves you. So we're going to sing about that in a moment. Dara and the band are going to come up and lead us that we might just embrace this truth of being embraced by him. But I just, I want you to know if you don't yet know this, if this hasn't been your experience that this is for you. I hope I've made it quite clear the qualifications for this are very low. This isn't, oh, well, if I do some good things, are they asking me to do this or that? I'm asking you to come to Jesus and just to say to him, I need you. I want this love. I'm sorry for how I've lived. Please forgive me. Please embrace me with a love like no other love I've ever known. can ask him to do that right now, right this second. You don't have to have understood all of it. 
But you need to, but if you've seen some today, like I need that. It's there for you. He's there for you. Lord, we love your love. We're so grateful for your love. We want to be aware of your love this year. Actually, like never before. Help us to see the cross. Help us to see the empty grave. Help us to see the embrace of the Father and the Son as the love of God. And every other good thing you give us as a reminder that you love us.